Good morning, gentlemen. Before we get started, I'd like to uh, piggyback on a comment that John made at the beginning of his presentation when he said that when he thought back over his uh, the devotionals that he had listened to, he couldn't remember one of them. And my mind immediately went to uh, some reading I had done years and years ago uh, in the um, Great Awakening the 18th century United States, prior to the Revolutionary War, the Spirit of God moved mightily in the northeastern United States. And one of the principles in that movement was a guy by the name of Jonathan Edwards. And a revival broke out, and many, many men and women came to faith. As a result of this, in order to instruct them, He not only taught two to three times on Sunday, he taught after work every single day of the week. And people would file into the church after work and listen to the word of God preached. I tell you this because cynics in the media came to him and said, uh, we have surveyed and interviewed a lot of the folks that um, have gone to your church day after day after day. The truth of the matter is they can't remember a single thing that they heard. To which Jonathan Edwards said, and this is the reason I bring it up. He said, you must remember that the purpose for the preaching of the word is not that people will remember the message, but that lives will be changed. And that when the word of God enters into a man's life, change takes place. And oftentimes a man cannot identify how it takes place. So it does not surprise me or chagrin me that the audience does not remember my messages, for that is not my objective. It is not their ability to regurgitate what it is I said, but rather the transformation of their lives. And so I say to you that this is the reason we expose ourselves to the Word of God. With that in mind, let me lead us in prayer. Father, we acknowledge our dependence. You've said, except the Lord build the house, we labor in vain that build it. And unless you do a work in our lives, it'll be futile. So we ask in humble submission and dependence for your work in our lives to will and to do of your good pleasure. To the praise and glory of Jesus Christ, in whose name we ask this. Amen. Gentlemen, turning your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to explore, Lord willing, the first 18 verses. I entitled my study of this, Striving for Obscurity. Because in these 18 verses, Jesus warns against doing good for the wrong reason. He has three illustrations dealing with Pharisaic practices. And note with me at the outset that in each case, the right reason for doing it is eternal rewards. He gives three examples. The giving of alms prayer, and fasting. In each of these three, we see a warning, a temporal promise, instruction on how to do it correctly, followed finally by an eternal promise. Now, motive or heart attitude is the key component in understanding the Sermon on the Mount. I remind you that in the Old Testament law, the only commands dealing with motive that I can think of are love God, honor your parents, don't covet. 
But with the demise of the theocracy, you find that three things take place in Israel's history. First, there is the shift from the corporate to the individual, the temporal to the eternal, motive, excuse me, action to motive. By the time you get into the New Testament, and particularly the Sermon on the Mount, that shift is complete. Now you find traces of this in the exilic and post-exilic prophets. But as I say, in the New Testament, it is a complete change. It's no longer the nation that is in the foreground. It is now the individual. It's no longer temporal promises. They are now eternal. And action is not as important in the economy of God as motive or intent. I remember when I was in school, one of those wise, godly professors that you're privileged to run across in your education, said to the class, gentlemen, when you get into the ministry, strive for obscurity. And I thought, wow, I want to remember that. Strive for obscurity. Matthew chapter 5 concludes with the words, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Here in these first 18 verses, he's saying, In your quest for perfection, Be careful that your actions are not mere show, seeking the approbation of man rather than God, because that will lead you to places you don't want to go. You play to an audience of one. There's only one individual in the universe you seek to please. And when you seek the acceptance or recognition of anyone other than God, you lose your reward in heaven. So striving for obscurity becomes the strategy that our Lord Jesus suggests if we really want to do well in the economy of God. Now what I want to do is read with you that portion of Scripture And then go back and pick it up at a piece at a time. So if you have that open in your laps or table in front of you, follow along. It's very important that you follow along in your translation because if you don't, you will not understand my translation. So... Take heed that you do not your alms before men to be seen of them. Otherwise, you have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Therefore, when you do your alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But when thou doest thine alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth that thine alms may be in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret himself shall reward thee openly. Bruce, can I talk you for a glass of water, please? Thank you. And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet. And when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy Father which is in secret. And thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. But when ye pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. Be not ye therefore like unto them. For your Father knoweth what things ye need of before ye ask him. 
After this manner, therefore, pray ye, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Moreover, when ye fast, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear unto men to fast. Verily I say unto you, they have the reward. But thou, when thou fastest, anoint thine head and wash thy face, that thou appear not unto men to fast, but unto thy Father which is in secret. And thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. Now in verse 1, in my translation it says alms. The word there is different from the words in verses 2 through 4. Here in verse 1, the word has to do with doing what God requires. Religious duties are acts of charity. This righteousness of which Jesus speaks in verse 1 consists of godlike acts in a godlike attitude as you more and more seek to fulfill the command of Jesus in verse 48 of the previous chapter. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Now others may benefit, but the object of your desire to please always <coughs> remains God. In Matthew 5.16, Jesus said, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. The hypocrite ostensibly does these things for the purposes of fulfilling verse 16. That is, they give alms, they pray, and they fast. Ostensibly, I say, that God may get the glory. But Jesus calls them hypocrites because he says their motive is not the glory of God, but their motive is the glory of self. Now, gentlemen, since the difference is motive, and I certainly cannot tell your motive, whether it's pure or impure, I can't even figure it out in my own life. All we can do is use these for self-evaluation. Never forget that you can use your motives to identify what is wrong in your life, but you can never identify a pure motive. The only thing you can identify is a bad one. Now note in verse 1, that Jesus does not say heavenly reward. But I would suggest to you that the whole context has to do with rewards in heaven. Otherwise, why would he say the Pharisees have their reward if it's a temporal one? In these words, we note that it's possible for a person to lose his reward in heaven. Jesus assumes that you don't want to do this, that you want eternal profit. That's why he says what he does. This word reward appears no fewer than nine times in the Sermon on the Mount. And then he uses other words besides, like treasure, to emphasize the same point. For where your heart is, there will your treasure be also. So let me call to your attention that Jesus in this sermon, shatters the philosophical underpinnings of altruism. 
So in the final analysis, gentlemen, Jesus asks this question. Yes. What, uh, what was your last statement? In this sermon, Jesus destroys the philosophical underpinnings of altruism. Okay. Can you explain to us that don't know what that means? How many of you don't ever heard or don't know the word altruism? Okay. Altruism, the reason why I wanted to find out if you knew or not is because I wasn't sure you'd agree with my definition. So, <laughs> if you guys know what the word means, it makes me very nervous. Altruism simply means that you do not do it for any personal reason. There is no motive of self involved in it. You do it simply because it is the right thing to do. Period. Nothing in scripture supports that view of life. Nothing. And let me remind you, since Winston asked me to comment on this, that this word altruism was coined by the philosopher in order to get people to do what was right independent of God. Any question on that? Okay. Thank you. What I'll do is I'll take each of these three, comment on them, and I'll give you an opportunity to interact with me. In verses 2 through 4, he talks about almsgiving. Notice in verse 2 that most religions acknowledge the importance of almsgiving. Interestingly, Jesus in these verses does not suggest that the giver needs to get involved in the life of the person to whom he gives. He just simply says, do it. Notice Jesus says, when, not if. He assumes that you will do it. It's just a matter of how you're going to do it. So, in this sermon, Jesus assumes everybody's generous and everybody does it for profit. That's his assumption. Those who give alms in this manner obtain what they seek. That is, they gain the approbation of man, but they do not curry the favor of God. Gentlemen, Christ's teaching makes Theatrical, religious, odious. Even though people continue to do it today. It still stinks in the nostrils of God. Now it seems that in this passage, Jesus does not condemn the hypocrite. No law has been broken. They merely forfeit any reward that they may have accrued from God. That's all. They are hypocrites because they profess to please God when in reality they are seeking the pleasure of men. Now note with me here that secular uh, philanthropists are not hypocrites because they freely admit in their giving that they're trying to accrue favor to themselves. He's only talking about the guy who pretends to do it for the glory of God when in reality he wants people to acknowledge how good he is. Anytime you as a follower of Christ give with a desire to be seen of men, you, according to Jesus, are a hypocrite. Interestingly, the recipients of such gifts are more than happy to praise the giver. 
exacerbating the very problem Jesus warns against here. It seems to me that it's impossible <laughs> to show gratitude to the donor without tempting him in this regard. Now, gentlemen, I, in all of my adult life, have lived off of the generosity of God's people. And I really wrestle with this. Should I refrain from giving them thanks? Because I know full well that if I do, that I tempt them in the very thing that Jesus warns against here? Is it wrong for a church to name an addition to the building after the donor in showing their gratitude? It seems to me, I can't be dogmatic here, but it seems to me the motive is the key. If you receive no thanks for the gift that you have given, and you're concerned for the thanklessness of the recipient, and you call it to his attention, you probably are right with God. But if you're bothered by it for personal reasons, then I would suggest to you that you are standing on dangerous ground. Yeah. If you give to somebody and they are, they did not show their gratitude and you're bothered because of their thankless heart and you go to them for that reason because you're concerned for them, not for yourself but for them, then you probably are going to be alright with God. But if God, who knows your motives, finds that the thing that really is bothering you is not the well-being of the thankless person, but the fact that you have been slighted, I would say you're probably in trouble. In the, uh, it, when you talk about giving, uh, in the, in the sense, in the corporate sense, like uh, in a group setting, say in a church, when does it cross the line? In that respect, for instance, I think, um, when people give in a church setting, you know. You know, people will see if you give or not give. How how should that be structured? I know, like I think of some churches that uh, um, they they encourage you to tithe, but then they also encourage you to do faith promises. They encourage you to give to this, to give to that. And it almost seems like people sometimes get caught up in an attitude of giving that's more bondage than it is gratitude to God. And I'm just wondering, it seems like amongst Christians, that seems to be one of the, the most troublesome aspects of charity today. Um, I would agree. The, the mentality, um, it's, I have some friends, I think of a, a young couple I know in the area where I live, and they're just, they're financially whipped. Uh, and, uh, you know, some of it's of their own doing, obviously. But they're trying to, you know, raise a family or whatever. But they belong to a big church, and that big church perpetuates building programs and expanding ministry. And, and they, they're virtually in bondage. And they give, and, and, I, and, and I, don't, I guess you know where I'm coming from. And I'm just wondering if you could comment maybe on that. I know a guy, Chuck Smith, uh, who started Calvary Chapel, um, had a chance to go to Israel with him a few years ago. And uh, one of the things that struck me about him and his mentality was that they never take an offering. And they've grown that ministry so much without an offering. Uh, so I just thought I'd ask you what your convictions were on that for charity. Yeah. Well, gentlemen, Jesus says the strategy is in verses 
three and four. You do it in secret. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand's done. So there's no chance for receiving the appreciation of others. But before I throw it open for the rest of you to questions, let me call to your attention the fact that what I said at the beginning, and we're going to talk about it again and again in the time we have left, is that most people wrestle with to whom they should give. Where scripture says the key issue is why you give. You give because you're the obedient servant of Jesus. You give not where you want it to go. You give where Jesus wants it to go. And Jesus accepts nothing that is not done for him. So never ever forget that. Now, gentlemen, that is a huge concept in Scripture. I don't care how generous you are. I don't care how giving you are. God Almighty accepts nothing except that which is done for him. Any questions? Yes, Chris. Well, the man that... Uh strives for obscurity in giving and in the process of that does incur a bit of appreciation from men because it can't be avoided being vain men in nature who want to avoid that but when it's given the motive is not for that but obviously the vanity of man is tickled a little bit where does he stand before God, or how does he stand before God as he strives for obscurity, but maybe incurs by a man or two some appreciation? Yeah. The applause of men, in whatever form it comes, ought to be as odious to you as it is to God. And you should feel exceedingly uncomfortable when it comes your way. Be gracious, but be uncomfortable. Yes. And then when you're done, hand it over to Tom afterwards, if you would. Walt, I thought I heard you say that you cannot identify good motive in your life. You can only identify bad motive. That's what could I you, said. Could you talk a little bit about that? I'm not sure I understand that. Well, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 that the conscience has the power to condemn it has no ability to absolve. Motive is a product of conscience. And your motives can condemn you, but they cannot identify when you are pure. Tom. So, if I heard you right, there's, there's absolutely nothing wrong with the profit motive in giving. I mean, you're, you're basically saying the distinction is whether it's the here and now profit or the eternal profit. Exactly. And um, so how do you actually keep your brain? I mean, if you're doing it for, hey, I'm doing this for profit. So you're, you're trying to basically just divide it in your head where it's I'm going to completely ignore any of the you know, what my church buddies may think or my Bible study buddies, and you just completely divorce that from your head, and you're, you're singularly pleasing to God only. And yes. as long as you're doing that, that's, that's your point. Exactly. But see, it, it is, see, everything in the system says that we'll call attention to your greatness in the here and now if you only give to us. My alma mater. You know, sends out this, it's a Christian school, by the way, and sends out this um, alumni magazine. I'm sure your alma mater does the same thing. And it lists the donors. 
And they've got different clubs that you can belong to depending upon the amount of money that you've donated so that your classmates can see how truly great you are. So instead of singing how great thou art, we say how great I am. And God says, I just don't particularly care for that. Yes, Ed. We're coming up on a time where in a lot of people's lives we need that little um, giving statement for our IRS records. You know, that's a practice that has bothered me. Um, how would you address that? And it's like you give to organizations or you give to, <clears throat> to missionaries and, and, uh, and sometimes even if you give it to them wanting the obscurity, you know, you still get this little, you know, you sent this much for your tax records. And that's a, a practice that, that uh, you know, I'd just like to have you address that for a, a minute. Yeah, well, Ed, let me say to you that there's nothing wrong at all with being a good steward. Nothing wrong at all. Um, motive is the key. The government in the United States is exceedingly generous in the sense that many governments in the country, in the world don't do this. They will allow you tax exemption for your charitable contributions. Well, I would by all means take them. But understand, you're only trying to please one person in the universe. Only one. Let me go on. Let's talk about prayer. Prayer gentlemen, forms the essence of your relationship with God. To be without prayer is to be without a relationship with God. It's the very heart of your communion with your Creator. Now, again, it seems to me that Jesus is not warning against public prayer, but rather prayer that has as its goal a reputation for piety. So he says, when you pray, you enter into the closet to pray. Now, I have to be honest with you, gentlemen. Of all the disciplines in the Christian life, prayer seems to be the least profitable. Maybe, maybe fasting the least profitable. But there's nip and tuck between the two. Because I pray for this and it doesn't happen. I don't pray for this and it does happen. I think, myself, man, I should have prayed for that. It would have been a great prayer request. <laughs> And I can never get them together. And yet Jesus singles it out as being a source of great eternal profit. Therefore, I do it because I know it profits me. Now, my reward is not necessarily the answered prayer, but the fact that I prayed. Let me illustrate for you. Let's say that there's a man who is in a foreign country someplace, halfway around the world. And he has cancer. And you pray, and you pray, and you pray, and you pray some more that God will heal him. Nobody but you and God knows that you're doing this praying. And the man dies of his cancer. Where is your reward? What motivates you to do it next time? And again and again, I would suggest to you it is because your Father will reward you when you get to heaven. That's why you do it. And if you don't have that motive, you'll find prayer to be exceedingly difficult. In intercessory prayer, you demonstrate to God what you cannot do for yourself. God will not do for a man what he can do for himself. He'll only do for you what you cannot do for yourself. And it's in your intercessory prayer that you demonstrate what that looks like. Now notice, in verses 5 and 6, Jesus warns against trying to impress others. In 7 and 8, he warns against trying to impress God. 
So he says in verse 7, don't use vain repetitions. So I asked myself, how about the liturgy in a lot of churches? How about the rosary in the Roman Catholic Church? Are they violations of verses 7 and 8? Not necessarily. But I think you have to be very, very careful here. I think that having a morning devotion can be rote. Instead of trying to really please God. When he says they're vain babble. I was reminded of Elijah on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal. And Elijah was heard not because he emulated the prophets of Baal. But because God is. And he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So he says in verse 8, he says, don't be like them because your father in heaven already knows what you need before you ask for it. I think to myself, if that's the case, why ask? I mean, if he already knows, why ask? I'll tell you why. Because he wants you to ask. He wants you to register your dependence. That's why. But that doesn't mean that you go on trying to talk him into what it is he doesn't think is in your best interest. So connecting verses 7 and 8 together, it seems to me what he's saying is, God does not need to be informed of your needs any more than he needs to be aroused by your incessant demands and babblings. Yes. Could, Walt, could you comment on the value of prayer chains? No. Thank you. <laughs> Sorry. Yes. So when we pray... Instead of vain repetitions, we should continually repeat the Lord's Prayer, is what he's saying? No. no. The Lord's Prayer is not a liturgy. The Lord's Prayer is an illustration of what prayer ought to look like. Let me finish this, and then we'll have some more questions. Now, gentlemen, throughout his sermon... Jesus tells us again and again that God will take care of our needs. So take Matthew 6.33, for example, a passage most of you have memorized. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. So, let me suggest the following. Number one, God knows what you need. Number two, don't try to leverage God in prayer. Number three, seek His will and don't beg God to do your will. Number four, ask because He tells you He wants you to ask. And finally, if you don't get what you want, assume that God doesn't want you to have it and leave it there. Now, the Lord's Prayer is a rich portion and forms a sermon all of its own. And I'm going to have to skip it here simply because of our brevity of time. I want to go down, however, to verses 14 and 15. And I want you to notice in 14 and 15 that Jesus circles back on the subject that he discussed in verse 12. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And then he says... For if you will forgive men, God will forgive you. But if in the unlikely event you don't forgive men, God won't forgive you. Now, let me suggest five reasons why Jesus comes back and talks about it again. Number one, this truth is fundamental in our relationship with God. As a matter of fact, 
it may be the only condition for salvation given by Jesus in the Gospels. Number two, because God is the author of all events in life, it means that all negative circumstances have their origin in God. This simply means that in the final analysis, nobody can hurt you. Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6, quote from the psalmist, The Lord is my helper, therefore I will not fear, for what can man do to me? Your refusal to forgive lays the blame at the feet of the wrong person. Number three, tied to the Lord's Prayer, if you want your prayer to be effectual, you must forgive. I ask, he says in that prayer, forgive me as I forgive others. Number four, it forms the basis of all relationships in life. Why? Because all of us are sinners. And if you cannot forgive a sinner you're going to end up having no relationships at all. And number five, it forces you to look to God alone for justice. Vengeance is mine. I repay, says the Lord. Any questions or observations? Yes. In verse 14, um, when it says for us to forgive men, is it talking about when men are, are, their transgressions are against us, or is it just in general our observations of what they're doing? Or That's a great question. Let me answer it in three parts. Number one is, nobody is capable of not judging. So it's only the question of how you're going to do it. Observation number two is that when you sit in the seat of judgment, like, for example, serving on a jury, then you function as the magistrate. And your goal is not forgiveness. Your goal is justice. Forgiveness is the setting aside of justice. The magistrate cannot do that. He is required to enforce justice. But the individual believer is required to forgive and not seek justice. And so therefore, I would suggest to you that it's only the sins that are committed against you that he's talking about here. Understanding full well that though Joe Schmutz was the guy that brought it into your life, in reality it came from God. Because Joe Schmutz can't touch you. Yes. Um, well, back to the prayer issue for a sec. Or yes. The, uh, yeah. One thing that's bothered me for a long time, and I've been looking forward to this retreat, so I could ask you this, and so don't disappoint me. <laughs> um, but a couple, a couple of years ago, a Young Life bus uh, had an accident, and I thought to myself, I'll bet every parent on that bus full of kids prayed for a safe trip. And they didn't get it. And I think I'm afraid I know the answer, but uh, so should you pray for safety uh, along, along with other things? Absolutely. Man, I pray for my own safety. I pray for the safety of my, my family. Yes. Yeah. Jesus tells me to. If I don't pray, then I am a disobedient servant. 
But in my heart of hearts, as I pray, I always, always have as the caveat, not my will, but yours be done. And gentlemen, I can see the gracious hand of God in my life in many, many ways, but none more profound than in God not giving me what I wanted. So grateful. I'm so grateful that God did not give me what I wanted. Whew. Yes? What are your thoughts? Um, if somebody wrongs you or you feel offended, and there's a line that they don't understand that that's what they did, at what point do you confront them about it aside from the given forgiveness? Yeah. Again, I would suggest to you that as long as you can defend before God that the reason you're calling it to their attention is you have their best interest at heart, you're home free. But if God detects just a little bit of self-justification in there, don't go there. Yes, back here. Walt, there's a, a parable, and I, I don't know exactly where it at, where the widow kept after the judge until she got what she wants. Right. How does that line up with what we're talking about here this morning? Yeah. Good question. I'm not sure how to score them. All I can say is, although God wants you to persevere in prayer, that's the point of the parable, don't ever, ever conclude from that that God wants you to talk him into doing what he doesn't want to do. To do. That is, that is unmitigated disaster. Yes? Um, in, in the first part of James, it talks about praying for wisdom. And, and it seems to indicate that you should pray anticipating that God's going to give you wisdom. And how do you strike a balance between that and, and uh, not expecting him to deliver what you ask for? Let me ask you this. If God answers your prayer in James 1.5 and gives you the wisdom for which you asked, will you know that you've got it? Again? Yeah. That's how I would answer you. See, a lot of times the prayers that God answers in our lives we're not sure that he's answered them. That's why we call it faith. We walk by faith. Faith is commitment without knowing. Nothing makes a man more nervous than walking by faith. Uh, number eight, uh, Walt, if I understood your comment, uh, to be cautious about trying to talk God out of what God intends or wants, isn't there an Old Testament example, and I'm showing my ignorance here about it. I think there was a dialogue between Moses and God, and God intended to exact some portion of punishment on Israel, and yeah. Moses argued and debated with him, and yes. doggone if God didn't relent and give in. Can you comment on how that squares? Yeah. Well, the passage you were talking about is Exodus 32 and 33, where when Moses is up on Mount Sinai making, getting the law. Aaron is making the golden calf. And uh, before he, Moses even knows what's going on, God says, I'm going to kill him. Every single one, I'm going to kill him, and I'm going to start over with you. And Moses says, God, you can't do that. You can't do it for two reasons. One is... You made a promise, and your promises are inviolable. And number two is that you've already gone on record that these are your people, and that you've taken them out of bondage 
And if you kill them here in the wilderness, your, your reputation will suffer. The people in Egypt will hold you in derision. And your reputation is far more important than that. And God says, okay, I relent. Now, there are many mysteries in the Bible. And the unchanging God changing his mind is one of those mysteries. I can't help you with that. Yes, John? Walt, I was just thinking about the uh, motive and, and prayer, and there seems to be a little bit of tension there. And my question is, you know, if, if, uh, if we understand prayer to be a command and our reward is in heaven, then how does that relate to the prayer for the unbeliever to become a Christian in the sense that we want to see him become a Christian? A Christian? Is that valid? And how does that relate to what you're talking about? I think it's valid. But see, there again, it's the same kind of attention. It's the sovereignty of God versus the responsibility of man. You know, what? what is the program of God? God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Okay? Jesus said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would have gathered you to myself as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. Interesting. That the creature resists the will of the Creator. All right? And yet at the same time, we know that nobody is going to go to hell because you failed to preach the gospel to them. God saves whom He wants. How do you put the two together? I have the finished idea. You believe both. Understanding neither. Yes. Um, I'm, I'm still struggling a little bit with verse 15. This is something I've kind of struggled with for a while. And that is, it seems in verse 15 that God's forgiveness, in a way, is dependent on our action. And I don't understand how God and His sovereignty can need something from us to do something. Well, I think you're absolutely right. That's, the, that's the, clearly what He says. It's not the only place He says it. He says it at the end of chapter 15 of the same Gospel. Where he gives the parable, of, not the parable. Peter comes to him and says, how often should I forgive? Seven times. Now that's magnanimous, because remember in the Old Testament, God did not ask people to forgive other people. So this is a brand new idea. And Jesus says, I want to tell you that if you do not freely, from your heart, forgive those who sin against you, I promise you that when you get to heaven... God won't forgive you. That's why I said, it is, it may very well be, the only condition for salvation mentioned in the Gospels. Jim. Well, uh, it seems that uh, he's commanding us to give and to pray. But at the same, and, and to do so um, purely, uh, with the right motive. But on the other side, he's saying that you can't know your motive. And so how do we know when to pull the trigger on when to pray and when to give because we don't know whether our motive is pure or not? I understand exactly what you're saying. Jim, I've reason I understand is in the 50 years I've walked with Jesus, I've wrestled with this continuously. I cannot know my motive, but I can know what is right. And so I say, God, I am a depraved individual. 
Forgive me. I will do right, though. I can't identify right. I want to take this just a second and comment on this for a moment. The other morning, my beloved was lying right here. About four in the morning, I was trying to muster up enough energy to get out of bed. And so I said to her, sweetheart, in Genesis 6, verse 5, it says, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every imagination of the thought of his heart was only evil continuously. Do you think that's true for you? I thought you were going to kill me. <laughs> so I ask you, do you think it's true for you? You, you. Is Genesis 6, 5 true for you? Let me ask it another way. Is there any area of your life in which God could not find fault if he so chose? Any area where you feel comfortable coming before God and say, God, I've got this one. You can't fault me on this. See, gentlemen, I, I don't know. I just think that um, let, me, let me ask you one other question. Is your anger and your lack of gratitude a calling into question the way God runs his universe? You tell me, is it? Now, Jim, if that's the case, I'm hung. But I do know what is right. I can go do that. God help me with everything else. Let me finish off with fasting. Now, fasting, gentlemen... The third of the three illustrations dealing with the proper conduct in the Christian disciplines. All three, alms, prayer, fasting, have in common that they all deal with making those disciplines that are private, public. All three deal with motive and have as their objective pleasing God. All can be done in private, and therefore you're best served doing them in private. All of them apply both to the Old and the New Testament. If you want to do them and have them accepted, they've got to be with the motive solely of pleasing God. No other motive can be involved. Note here that Jesus does not include things like sacrifice and circumcision. In that he anticipates the New Testament, even though he says we're under the law. Now, I know of no New Testament command to the effect that you have to fast. There are commands to the effect that you've got to pray and that you've got to give. Now, in Leviticus 19, excuse me, Leviticus 16, where it talks about the day of Yom Kippur, the Holy of Holies, the, the, the sacrifice of atonement, there was a command to fast. The whole tone of Scripture is that fasting can help. Jesus says it can accrue you eternal profit. I have fasted on various occasions in my life. And I have to be honest with you, gentlemen, I have never found a satisfactory experience in fasting. It's interesting that 
The purpose of the fasting is to kill the desires of the flesh. When I fast, I seem to awaken those desires. <laughs> that tells you a lot more about me than it does about fasting. In verse 11, Jesus says, When you pray, pray, give us this day our daily bread. Here, in an act of sacrificial love, his followers refuse to partake. And he says, when you do it, keeping the focus on God instead of your reputation, you can gain eternally. But if you fast, he says, make sure nobody knows about it. Don't let your appearance change. Now, if you fast for a long time, you have to take a few notches in your belt. But do that in private. Let me close off by making this observation. The righteousness exalted by our Lord Jesus and practiced in obscurity testifies to the world that you seek solely the affirmation of God. And so I want to come back to where we began. Gentlemen, God accepts only that which you do for him. Whatever you do for your kids or your wife, whatever you do for your career, your country, whatever you do, period, if it is not done for God, if it's not done because you are his obedient servant and you are obeying him and not trying to meet a need, he will not accept it. That's why I said to you earlier, that concept is huge in your walk with God. And your willingness to practice it in obscurity testifies to your believing that to be true. Somebody once said, show when you're tempted to hide and hide when you're tempted to show. Any questions or comments? John Ball. You slipped in a sentence um, a while back. Could you expound on God causes negative events or, or causes negativity? Yes. Could you expound on that? Well. is what is negative answer anything that causes me pain not so negative if it causes you pain only if it causes me pain so God says it's not negative God says I am in charge of the universe The thankless heart disagrees with how I'm running it. That's why the Bible says, in everything, give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. So, there are no accidents and there are no victims. There's a question over here someplace. That's okay. All right. Anybody else? James? I'm still struggling with the, the issue of um, you emphasize motive all the way through and understand that. 
but the comments of you can't know if your motives are pure, and I'm still struggling with reconciling those two things. They're in, irreconcilable. That's why you're struggling with it. How can I test my motives then? If I'm supposed to test my motives about these issues, but I can't know. Well, you can't know if they're bad, though. That's the key. You can know that they're bad. Right. That's where you've got to be careful. Your conscience can tell you when you're wrong. It cannot tell you when you're right. Okay, our conscience can't tell us when we're wrong and right. Can God tell us when our motives are pure? No. Well, he can, but he doesn't. He can tell you when they're impure. But see, James, you walk by faith. You walk by faith. And faith is commitment without knowing. Well, gentlemen, we've hit the magic hour of a quarter till. Let's close it off here. Thank you for being very gracious and patient and let me share this hour with you.